months have passed. We've heard some great stories here on Sunday mornings of some people who have been in the midst of storms or they've just come out of them and how God has worked in their lives in powerful ways to make them no longer fear the storm, but actually become storm chasers. That's really been our goal from day one in the series, to see where Jesus is in the storm, what he has for us, and how we can hold to his promises through the whole process. You know, the walk with Christ is a walk of faith. It's believing what is unseen. It is believing truth in the midst of my current reality. So it's believing that there's forgiveness in Christ when I'm just being crushed with guilt right? It's choosing to believe Jesus has paid for my sin. It's choosing to believe that he loves me because of what Christ has done, even when I feel so unlovely. Amen? It's choosing to believe that God has a purpose for my life when it seems there is no purpose currently. That's what faith does. Faith trusts in what is unseen. Faith trusting what God says over what I see. And the place that that becomes the most difficult is when a storm is brewing. In our life, when things are not going like we planned, when there's pain, when there's loss, when it's confusing, choosing to stay faithful in the midst of that, choosing to keep seeking God in the midst of that, choosing to believe his word in the midst of that is what makes you a storm chaser. So I want to kind of give you a big point that we're going to use today to frame our service. Here it is. This is going to hold true for our, the passage we're looking at and the story today. Here it is. Storm chasers believe that the eternal purposes of God are bigger than the temporary effects of a storm. Yeah? yeah? There's, a, there's effect of the storm. There's damage, collateral damage. There's loss. But in the midst of it, the storm chaser says, I choose to believe that God has a purpose here. It's a good purpose. And though I can't see it now, I will hold true to his promise. Amen? Amen. There's no story in scripture that perhaps illustrates this better than the story of Job. The Bible says he was a righteous man. It doesn't list that he had a long list of sins, faults. He was man, but there's nothing that would indicate that a storm was coming into his life because of something he had done. In fact, the scripture reads in Job chapter 1, it said, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Ten children. The Bible goes on to list a lot of uh, possessions that he had. I mean, a lot. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that in his day, he was one of the greatest men that lived. That's a pretty big statement about one man, blessed by God. What Job doesn't know that there's a conversation in heaven that takes place between God and between him and Satan. And the result of that conversation is that God gives Satan permission to touch what Job has, but to not touch him. As the Bible unfolds there in Job chapter 1, it tells the story of the worst of all worsts. Report after report comes. Job, you've lost your possessions. Job, you've lost the livestock. Job, you've lost this. And finally, Job, a storm, a literal storm has come. And it's killed all your children. I don't know what it's like to lose a child. I pray I never have to. I can't imagine the weight, the thoughts of that. But to lose 10 in one day and the processing of that event and trying to fit that together somehow with your faith, somehow with how you've lived and somehow with your future and somehow with God, 
just seems like they'd be difficult. But the scripture tells us what Job did in that moment. It tells us this later in chapter 1. It says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He worshiped. I get tearing your robe. I'm not sure if I get shaving your head, but <laughs> back in the day, it was a sign of grief, mourning, sorrow. I get falling to the ground, worshiping, worshiping God in the midst of such loss. When that loss wasn't because of something you had done, but as best you knew, it was something God caused. Worship. The rest of the book of Job is the story of Job's friends, friends coming to try to console and give their counsel on maybe why this has happened and what Job should do about it. And they talk and they talk for some 42 chapters, it seems. And finally, Job hears from God. You get to the end of the book of Job and God speaks and overwhelms Job with his power, his wisdom, his might, and his love. And Job, his heart was softened to God. And he continued to believe that he is the one who is able to bless, able to redeem, able to restore. Job did not grow bitter in his storm. He trusted his God. He trusted that God had a bigger purpose than the temporary effects. You get to the end of the book of Job and it says this. After that, now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. God is able to redeem and restore the most difficult and tragic storms in our lives. And it's critical for us as believers that in the midst of the storm, we don't crater, we don't give up, we don't walk away, we don't curse, we don't condemn, but we fall down in the tears, in the angst, in the sorrow, and we still worship God. He alone is able to redeem and restore. Today you're going to hear the story of a mother who watched her son go through storms. And moms, you know how difficult it is to sit back and watch one of your children struggle and suffer. And as a mom, not be able to do anything to help. It's a pretty helpless feeling. So I don't want to give away too much of the story, but I would love for you to help me welcome Paula Jones to the stage. <laughs> Paula is the wife of Buddy, who's normally over here playing the bass as he was this morning. But today's not about Buddy. Today is about Paula and the story of what God has done in her life. There we go. Come on over and have a seat, Paula. Have you all met Paula before? If you haven't, you should. Yeah. So, uh, hey, Paula. Hey. How are you? I'm nervous. <laughs> well, here's a microphone to make it worse. So. <laughs> all right. Y'all are my friends, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. In the beginning and in the end, still. All right, Paula. So, Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you live, where you work, and that kind of stuff. Well, I live in Midlothian, Texas, 
and uh, currently worked for the past 33 years for the Army Air Force Exchange Service in Dallas, Texas, and hopefully retiring in December. Wow, that's awesome. So, yep, that's what okay. I do and where I'm at. Okay. And Buddy stays at the house where you live, right? Yes, he does. <laughs> and, and mostly I'm known as Buddy's wife. I don't, you know. Yeah, that'll all change today. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Paula, your story, your storm story, centers around you as a mom. So tell us about the day you became a mom and family at that time. What, what's that like? Well, um... I became a mom on December the 12th, 1986. Okay. I uh, didn't start that way. Uh, my first husband and I um, had tried for several years to have a baby, and uh, we just couldn't. And so, um, just through the grace of God, we put an application into Buckner's Children's Home, and um, out of a thousand or more plus um, applications, they only accept about 100 a year, and we got chosen. Um, so it's destined that Ryan was going to be our child. We got him when he was four days old. Wow. Um, didn't know what to do with him, uh, as all new moms do. And um, so we were uh, a happy little family. They came and brought him and gave him to me, and it just was a joy after that, as wow. all new moms know and all mothers know. And any child that comes in your life is such a blessing and such a joy. So you're living in Duncanville at the time, and uh, Ryan is growing, and uh, talk about uh, life for you at the time, church involvement and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we just were a happy, normal family. Um, there was just the three of us. We only had the one son, and uh, we lived in Duncanville for 18 years. Uh, Ryan went to elementary school and just about to junior high, and junior high went to Ovilla Christian. Um, my uh, husband at the time was a minister of music uh, and uh, sometimes part-time education director and did a lot of times at all kinds of churches in Duncanville, DeSoto, um, that kind of thing. We were at church all the time. Uh, I was children's minister, coordinator, uh, choir teacher, uh, Awana commander, wow. uh, you wow. name it, we did it. And, um, you know, Ryan was just a happy kid, had lots of friends. Uh, he was quite shy, uh, you know, always held onto my coattails. I never lost him in a store. Uh, he wasn't going to get too far from me at all. Uh, so, but we were happy and healthy and just growing like a family. Okay. So in the year 2000, you decide to make a move to Midlothian. And um, things changed for Ryan talk about that for just a moment. Um, we got to Midlothian, uh, built a house. Um, he started eighth grade in Midlothian and it was great. We met neighbors and, you know, new friends and um, we made the change here. Um, he had made straight A's all up and through um, elementary and was such a good student, very studious. Um, came by it naturally, I'm telling you. Uh, he uh, began junior high, great friends, played soccer. Um, I just thought he was going to be a soccer superstar. I thought he was going to be valedictorian in middle of the high school. You know, <laughs> as all moms, you just, you know, have all those um, things for your children that you just, you know, love and adore. And um, about age 15, um, his interests changed. Um, he no longer wanted to play soccer. Um, he decided he wanted to be a rock and roll star, um, and that is a great thing. Um, it was the type of music, I don't know if you know Korn, or, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's the type that you want to hang, head, head bang, head bang. There you go. Um, you couldn't understand a word that any of the bands sang or said. Uh, they jumped around and, and broke guitars, mostly, and, um. Uh, Anyway, but I was shocked because he liked to sing out loud in front of people, which really was not him. Uh, but friends change. Um, grades started falling. Um, just started noticing anger outburst, and it just got to be a little hectic. Yeah, and it gets a lot worse. Yeah. What? Talk a little bit more about how this change happens in him. What, what else are you starting to see? Um, 
I would come home and smell marijuana sometimes. Um, he always had an answer. I think they're burning some tree down the road. Um, and really started noticing a lot of anger outbursts, um, lots of fights, um, lots of you know door slams. Um, started noticing different friends. Um, like I said, grades were slipping. I was getting phone calls all the time, skipping school. Didn't know where he was a lot of times. Uh, got worse when he started driving. Um, and this is the kind of thing, of course, you, you fear as a parent. It's that it's the thing it's happening, and this is what you feared the most. What what's going on in your heart, Paul, as you're watching this begin to happen? The sweet little boy you've known, who was a student, always by your side, becoming what you kind of fear. What what's going through your heart? Well, as a mom, y'all know that moms are fixers. We want to fix everything. And I didn't know how to fix it. And I tried um, as I would discover things in his room or find things, you know, I would approach him cautiously, uh, but I would hide it. I wouldn't tell my husband. And that was wrong. You should always share it with the people you love because they can help. But all you want to do is sweep things under the rug. You don't want to stand out. You don't want your friends to know. So we began sweeping stuff under the rug. So Ryan enters his senior year, and um, things are not getting any better. Talk about that for just a moment. Um, the summer before his senior year, um, we got a phone call, not you one that you want, and it was Midlothian Police Department, and Ryan had been arrested. At 17, he went to jail, just caught, caught smoking marijuana, and I know in this day and age, that's, you know, I mean, legalized a lot of places, but Back then, it was very hard. All I wanted to do was just go up to the jail, which I did. They wouldn't let me see him. I just told the girl at the desk to just please tell him that I'm outside the door. I wanted to stay in the parking lot because you know, I'm the mom. I wanted to fix it. I wanted him to be okay, and I just wanted to know that I was there. But you know, he's 17 and he has to learn a lesson. So we went home and they wouldn't let him out and we went and got him the next day. That was the beginning. He became very, um, just hard to deal with. He didn't wanna deal with um, any of his problems. He just wanted to be let alone. Started into senior year and he just skipped school and. It got very apparent by October that he wasn't going to graduate. And he was our only child. And just to think that you're not going to get that opportunity to see him walk in a cap and gown, you know, to get a diploma. And we went to Midlothian High School and talked to a wonderful Christian vice principal there. When I walked in, that vice principal had a Bible sitting on his, sitting on his desk. He advised us to go ahead and withdraw Ryan from high school because we were getting truancy tickets or whatever you want to call it. And that's when you have to go and you have to stand up in court and you have to pay fines for your kid not being in school. Um, we did that and we took him out of school. We thought we'd find a uh, private school to let him go into to finish school. And that lasted about a month. And then he just dropped out and quit. So all of this is, um, which by the way, there's a, there's a lot more to this story. We're condensing it down this morning for our discussion's sake. I think the day Paul and I sat down, I know she didn't even tell me all the details, but we were together for like three hours listening and she was talking and telling me so much, uh, so many other parts to the story. 
So some of this you'll, you'll feel like, oh, we just skipped over a lot. Yeah, we did. So, uh, Paula, this is producing tension, of course, in your heart and you with Ryan, but also in your marriage. And uh, there comes a day that um, your husband asks Ryan to move out. And I know that had to be painful as well, uh, the decisions y'all make through that process. But then uh, later, he makes a decision, your husband does at the time, that, that changes everything. Talk about that for just a moment. We'd been married for almost about 29 years, and uh, it was hard. Ryan would talk to me a lot of times, and he wouldn't talk to my husband, and that became a great big gap. Um, my husband thought it was best. He just wanted to pack everything Ryan owned up into garbage bags and put him out on the streets at 17, 18. A mom, you can't do it. It's, it's very hard to think about letting a little kid go out to try to live an adult life when they're not an adult and they're not count accountable for what they're doing. We'd patch so many holes in our walls because there was lots of punches and fights. So, uh, a time came though that hope was offered to us through my husband's sister and she wanted him to come live with her in Houston to get him away from the situation that we were in. My husband didn't think it was uh, the right thing to do. I felt in my heart that it was the right thing to do and we were at an impasse. So uh, I took Ryan to Houston she was so gracious to help him. She was going to help him get his GED and just get him away from the people he knew here. When I got back, there was a note on the counter and it just said, I want a divorce. We're never going to see eye to eye. And he didn't even want to go to counseling. So, Paula, how many people know about what's going on at this, and you've been, you've been a very public figure, known in the church. You've known a lot of people in the church community. How many people know about what's going on at this point? By the time we, I got the note, um, up until then, uh, about zero. We quit going to church the day Ryan got arrested. We went to a very prominent church in Midlothian. We felt like we couldn't be open with what was going on. We felt like everybody would be looking at us. And we turned away, we just stopped going, which is the wrong thing to do. It was not the church's fault, it was our fault. We turned inward. We wanted to sweep it under the rug. We wouldn't tell my parents, his parents. Uh, we just felt like we were gonna internalize this and live with it. So at that time, no, no one, one knew. No one knew. So as we move forward now, you're single mom, raising uh, Ryan. Um, you didn't have the income that you once did I'm sure a lot of money has gone out for Ryan. Talk about how things are financially for you as you move forward. Uh, well, take, my sal take our income and cut it by three-fourths, it seemed like. Um, he left me with the house that I couldn't pay for. Um, my dear sister stepped in, my dear mom stepped in and helped me. Um, but we had to have a plan. I had to sell the house, and it looked like to the very last day that I was fixing to move out and just let the house go, a wonderful Christian lady came, and she bought my house. But <laughs> I, 
I was trying to figure out if I was going to have, I didn't want anything for the house. I just wanted to pay it, pay it for what I owed. And if you ever try to work with a mortgage company trying to figure out what you really owe at the very last second, it's, it, it was hard. So at one point, a lady called and she says, well, we have a check for you for $200 for what you got for your house. And I was elated. And when the next day she called and she was uh, very sorry to tell me that I was $1,500 in the hole. I didn't have $1,500. So just by the grace of God, somebody came up with $1,500. And uh, I was able to get out from underneath my house. But bills were still piling up. I still had to pay, I had to make decisions. I had to pay electric over a credit card bill. And uh, I ended up filing bankruptcy. Again, we're condensing a lot of story elements here, but now you kind of get a, a frame of reference for where she is. Bills, uh, credit card bills, uh, just cost of life. Uh, 2009, you decide to begin dating, and you meet a guy named Buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There's another story there, but we don't have time for that. So. <laughs> yep, uh, I'm still dealing with Ryan. Um, he was living at my house in Cedar Hill, um, still doing drugs. Uh, as an enabler, I provided a lot of the money. Didn't have the money, but um, he pawned stuff, uh, stole stuff. Uh, but I was trying to move on with my life. And I knew God had other plans for me. And I always was looking for that man, that someone that would step in the gap and help me try to find something for Ryan to do, somewhere to go. And 2009, 2010, I met Buddy. Yeah. He comes along to be a hero, rescuer, <laughs> companion, helper. Uh, but it also puts him right in the middle of the story. Right. Buddy can do a lot, but this one, this one becomes more difficult at the time. It, the struggle is big. The struggle was big. And um, it begins to, there begins to be tension with Buddy and Ryan. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But uh, you told me about a day when you were trying to help Ryan, and there's a drive down I-35 to Dallas. Uh, tell that story. Uh, and what, what happened that day? There had been many, many times um, that, you know, Ryan would um, cut himself, harm himself, um, threaten to commit suicide, um, want to jump out of my car as we were driving someplace. This particular day, he called and he was needing a fix. And I had just had it, I was at work. So I went home and I just said, get in the car and pack a bag, because I'll take you wherever, but you're staying. Wherever you go, I'm leaving you. So we get in the car and uh, we weren't very far out of Duncanville. And I didn't know he had a knife. He began stabbing at my car uh, dashboard with a lot of force that made me think that the airbag was going to explode. I always kept my purse over to the left-hand side of me over here because there was so many times where I would have my purse in the right-hand side of me, and he would steal everything out of my purse without me even knowing about it. So I reached my purse, and I tried to get my cell phone out, and he realized I was going to call somebody. I was going to call 911. And he threatened to jump out of the car on me going down the freeway at 80 miles an hour or whatever. And uh, then he started, he took my cell phone, and he threw it in the back, and it broke. 
So I knew I had to get off the freeway. And he started stabbing his leg. And just the look on his face, it was not my son. It was the demon. It was a demon. He had black eyes. It was devastating. And all of a sudden I realized for the first time that that demon could take that knife and just come right across the slash of my throat. So I knew I had to get off the freeway. So I took Marcellus exit and I was just praying that I would run into a police officer. I couldn't find a police officer right there. So the next best thing I thought, well, I'll just drive to Methodist Hospital. But on the way, I thought if I drive through this Exxon station that was on the corner and I just jump out of the car and ask for help, that somebody might help me. But in a flash, I thought if I jump out of this car and Ryan is in the car with a knife, that he will either do something to himself or the police will come and he'll be a threat to them. And I didn't, I didn't want to be on the news. So we drove, I drove towards Methodist Hospital. And uh, I thought maybe an emergency, I could get somebody to help us. And uh, right as I was pulling up, he realized what, we were, what I was doing. And he was you know, cussing the whole time and wanting to turn around and wanting me to do this. And he wasn't making any sense. He sounded horrible. But for whatever reason, his phone rang. And it was the guy waiting to give him drugs. And in just an instant, he changed and his demeanor changed and said, oh yeah, my mom's driving me there right now. And he put the knife away and I drove him to the drug dealer. And I made him get out. So during all this time, um, Buddy is watching and the tension's mounting. Um, again, Buddy to Ryan, I'm sure between you and Buddy as well. And it gets bad. It gets, obviously that's terrible, that situation. How bad does it get between Ryan and Buddy? It was, at the beginning, Buddy was like a, a savior to me. Buddy actually helped Ryan get into Salvation Army. And that was a wonderful thing. But when he got out, he just went back to those same old ways. And there was many, many times that he would steal. Um, there would be so many outbursts and cussing and just anger, total anger. And he directed it not just to me, but to Buddy and to Natalie. And it was, uh, it was very hard because Buddy had been so even-tempered about everything, wanting to always help me. But after you get someone doing that to you time after time after time, it became very evident that this was not the life that we should be living. Yeah. So uh, to bring it a little bit more forward, we're now at about the time that... Uh, Two churches merge and become Vertical Church. And uh, Paula had been a part of uh, the church we were a part of, and so she came along too. And after being here not very long, we were in a service here, and Brad Vandenberg stands up and he talks about uh, a vision for caring for those caught in addictions. And so you're, you're drawn to Brad after that service, and you have a conversation with him. What is that? How does that conversation go? Felt like I got hit by a truck. Praying for that godly man to come in your life. To know that Buddy was there too. But for Brad to get up and say, I have this vision that I'm going to help people that with addiction and we're going to make it happen. And I had a conversation with Brad, and I said, I've got an addicted son. And he said, bring him. <laughs> bring him.
bring him. And uh, I did. Yeah. So at this time, Ryan is addicted. He is overcome, evil. He's living on the streets, malnutrition, in a desperate place. And again, boy, we are condensing a lot of the story down. You should talk to Paul at some point and hear the rest of the story. Um, but Brad and Jana make a decision. They, they invite Ryan to come live with them in their house and take on the role of helping there be redemption and restoration. It's really kind of from this that Restoration 360, the ministry you heard about just a while ago, really uh, gets some of its, its greatest strength and, and, and vision. So this wasn't the first time Ryan had been to a treatment, had been to a counselor. Uh, what's going through your mind as a mom as you're watching, okay, here's one more time. What's going through your mind? Just, just that a little bit. Um, like he said, I cannot count on two hands how many times I've taken Ryan to a treatment center. And because I'm not a wealthy person, and he was over the age where I had insurance for him, you had to go do free things. And God bless people who do give of their time, but it's hard. And those addiction centers are rough. And like he said, at this point in time, Ryan was no longer living in our house. We had to put him out in his 20s because of all the massive amounts of trauma. So he learned to live on the streets. And like he said, if you're a mom and you're looking and you go see your son because I, I didn't make a disconnection between him, even though I had to change my phone number in order to keep him from calling me 24-7, asking for money, just like he did with Natalie. Always trying to keep up with him, always trying to figure out where he's at. Is he hungry? Is he starving? He woke up one night in a a field and rats were crawling on him as a mom you don't want to hear that but that was reality and then Brad and Jana I'll go to restoration the first meeting I didn't bring Ryan I was afraid I was afraid of what he would smell like look like and act like I should have listened to God because after that meeting I thought who am I to stand in, in, in the way of what God has for my son in the first meeting I told Brad <laughs> I said uh you know, he's got this addictive gene. He's genetically wired and geared to be an addict. And so many places that you go to that have uh, help, once you're an addict, you're always an addict. And Brad said, stop that. Don't say that. Ryan's not an addict. God is bigger than that. Amen. Yeah. God heals, right, Brad? He heals. And when he does, he puts that as far from the east to the west. Yeah. So the second meeting, I brought Ryan. Yeah. Then Brad and Jana <clears throat> said, we're going to get Ryan. Well, before then, Brad and Jana said, we're going to get Ryan. I kept saying, no, you're not. <laughs> I, was, I was really scared that he would be destructive in their home, that he wouldn't stay. And I, I was basically refusing to let him go there. And Brad goes, you ain't got nothing to say about it. <laughs> and I, it was hard. 
Yeah. But then Brad and Ryan connected. So during all this time, you're holding on to some promises because there's not much else you can hold on to. There's nothing visible at the time in the storm that would give you any indication that this is going to get better. But you're holding some promises. Yeah. What are those promises, Paula? Well, I uh, have a couple of verses that have meant the world through this storm. One of them is Jeremiah 29, 11, and this one I had taped to my closet door because every time I would get dressed in the morning or take my clothes off at night, I read this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And all I kept thinking was that Ryan has a future. This is not the end. Ryan has a future. The other one that I held really dear to was in Isaiah 43, 2. And it says, when you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. But the flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One and of Israel and your Savior. Mm, amen. Amen. Yeah. And what I really appreciated about that verse is it didn't say you're not going to go through deep waters. You're not going to cross those rivers, and you're not going to not approach a fire. It says, when you do, I'm going to be with you because I am your Savior. Yeah, it's good stuff. So uh, Ryan begins treatments. Brad uh, gets him set up to go into Dallas every day for methadone treatments to help step him off of his addictions. And it's a process. It's a long process. And it means, uh, how many trips a day, Brad? One every day. So one trip every day for this treatment. And that lasts for a good while. And Brad, Jana, and Ryan and Caleb are faithful to help in that process. Uh, there comes a day, though, that they're not able to. And they begin to look, who else in our circle of family and friends could take Ryan to Dallas every day? Someone who's available. Someone who has a black truck, it's Buddy. <laughs> Buddy becomes the guy that is taking Ryan to Dallas every day for methadone treatments. And those trips are pretty quiet at first, right, Buddy? Not a lot being said <laughs> on those trips. But God begins to work. Because not only is Ryan beginning to come off of this addiction, but because of what he's learning through the Restoration 360 and time with Brad and Jana, he's learning about what God can do in his heart, who Christ is in him, and change begins to happen, not just physically, but spiritually, and it begins to change even the relationship with Ryan and Buddy. Man, there's a great story there, but for sake of time, Paul, I'm going I'm to kind of move ahead if that's all right. So um, um, they continue, he continues to live there. And um, with Brad and Jana, and God's doing amazing things in Ryan's life. And there's a part of the story we haven't told yet that's kind of part of the mix. Uh, something that God does that at the time you would have thought there's no way this part could ever be made right. There's no way this part could ever be restored. Paula, talk about this area that we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Through many, many, many years, a sweet little girl named Natalie never gave up on Ryan. Um, through homelessness, she was his girlfriend. She stuck by him and by his side, and we were madder than all get out, right, Natalie, at him? <laughs> we would be so mad at him. And there was a time I would pray, and I asked Natalie, and I told her, you got to stop it. you got to move on with your life. Because it didn't seem like it was going to get any better. 
then came a little beautiful miracle. And his name is Gray. And uh, a restoration happened between them two also. So not only do I get my son back, I get my sweet daughter-in-law and my little baby. His name is Gray. So the cool thing is we've got some pictures to show you because the transformation that God did in Ryan is just, is just staggering. In just a moment, you're going to get to hear from him uh, through some video, but I want you to see some pictures of Gray, and uh, there he is, sweet little young man. He's going to be four in October. And I want you to see the beauty of what God does in their marriage. Look at this picture. Yeah. And then this. Yeah. Buddy's even smiling. <laughs> it's a good day. Paula, what's happening on this, in this picture here? It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Um, November 4th, last year. And uh, that smile on Buddy's face. Ryan had, has become a son to him. Where they had been almost enemies. Now Ryan thinks of him as a dad. And that just is it right yeah. there. Through this time, um, he's been going for these methadone treatments, and Vertical Church has a hand in that because it's expensive. And some of you here had a hand in that. And they are forever grateful for the process. Ryan is free from that addiction. God has healed him completely. Ryan would be here today, but he is incredibly painfully shy. And the last thing he wanted was to be the center of attention. So he's the center of attention, but he's just not here today to be that. But we do have a video of him telling part of the story. So watch, watch Ryan's story to us. My name is Ryan Andrew Haney. My parents adopted me when I was a baby. My parents were awesome. My dad was a music minister. My dad was kind of like a recluse a little bit. Me and him didn't get along at times. And then around 15 years old, I started smoking weed and um, kind of rebelling. From about 15 to 17 is when my parents' relationship started becoming rough between them because they never could agree on how to discipline me. My dad wanted to kick me out. My mom wanted to let me stay and try to give me another chance and ended up with my dad leaving. My mom came and picked me up and we came back and all this stuff was gone and there was a note on the counter that said he was out. When I was 22, 21, the beginning of my uh, addiction is really when it started. It progressed into me being homeless on the streets living out of a backpack, staying on whoever's couch I could stay in or in the woods. <laughs> it was mosquitoes eating me up, all just to you know, live another day. And the only thing that concerned me was, how am I gonna get my next fix? That was life, period, that was it. Me and Natalie met in high school. Yeah, I've been in a relationship with her for the past 10 years, four or five years down the road, and our relationship is when I was on the streets and it got to a point where she was done with me. It was either you choose this path or the path with me. And my addiction had me so weighed down and surrounded that it, that's the path I chose. About four years ago, Natalie came and picked me up from her rehab. On the way home, she told me she was pregnant. That was a pretty surreal moment. My addiction was so powerful that even at that time, it would still be another couple of years before my life changed for the better. My relationship with my family eventually became completely cut off from them because they couldn't trust me. I would manipulate them to try to get money out of them. I'd steal from them. I know my mom was praying for me hard. My mom got remarried in 2010 to a buddy. The relationship between me and him was really bad. We did not like each other whatsoever. I was completely cut off from everybody and then eventually Natalie was done with me. She wouldn't talk to me anymore. I was alone. I'm lucky I'm not dead. There's been plenty of times where I should be dead. I know my mom feared for it and I feared for it too that one day the police were gonna call her and be like, oh, we found him overdosed in a ditch or he got robbed or 
he was doing something stupid and got shot or, you know, I was afraid that could happen at any moment. My mom started going to vertical church, started going to 360 meetings. I'd been to all sorts of rehabs, inpatient, outpatient, counseling, hospitals. One day on the streets, I'd borrowed somebody's cell phone to call my mom to ask her for money. I got a hold of her again and she was like, hey, I have a phone number for somebody that you need to call. They do this Restoration 360 meeting at the church I'm going to, just call me. Thought about it for that whole week and just how miserable everything was. No family, no girlfriend. If my son was on my mind every day, this is, this is my life. I'm, I'm not gonna make it. The, the person I was in contact with at 360 was like, when you're ready, text me. I'll come pick you up. No matter what day it is, no matter what time it is, let me know, I'll be there. Texted him in the afternoon and said, meet me, McDonald's, Jim Miller and I 30, I'll be there. I'm ready to go, come get me tonight. And uh, they did that night. And I told the person that came and got me, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be feeling too good. There's gonna be some withdrawal. Don't take me back there no matter what I say. Don't take me back there. That night, everything was fine. Next morning, I'm not in good shape. It's, it's bad, I'm sweating, cursing God, you know, just begging the person in his house. I was like, take me back, just take me back. I just, I just need one more, you know what I mean? I, I just need to feel better. The most important thing really was going to the 360 meetings, I think, and really understanding and looking at my addiction and recovering from addiction in a completely different way. And the first thing that I was just letting God take complete control of my life because that, that's something I never did whenever I was trying to get myself together in the past. It was always like, I gotta do this on my own. This is so hard, this is so tough. I have to find a job, I have to, I have to do all this stuff. Like it seemed really difficult. 360 taught me to truly really let God take control. That person that I was could be put to death, if you will, and that I could be reborn again and be a completely new person. Like I don't, I don't even like to look at myself like I'm, an, like I'm an addict today. I know like a lot of people in AA will say, or NA will say, you know, once you're an addict, you're always an addict, you're gonna have to deal with this the rest of your life, it's gonna weigh on you. Well, it doesn't have to weigh on you. And that, that, was, that was a huge thing in my mind because that, that's what I was always told. It's, this, is, this is your life. You're gonna have to always have this on your back and you can't, you're gonna have to be so careful with your life. That's not how it really is. That's not how it has to be. Understanding that by itself alone was a huge difference maker. My, my addiction was telling me that I was worthless, useless, gonna die young, you're not gonna be a good father, you're not gonna be a good son, you're not gonna be a good potential husband, none of that, you're, you're the lowest of the low, and that's where you'll stay, and that's where you'll be. But God tells me that I can be a loving father, a good son, I can, I can help other people, I can provide for my family, I can be a good husband, I can have a family, I can be a normal, I can be, what's considered a normal person, which is actually really exciting. I think normal's not the right word for it. Whenever I start getting stressed about bills and like what, oh, what are we gonna do about this? I always think, remember where you were three, four, five years ago and where you've come to now? What God brought me from then to where I am now makes worrying about a medical bill or a phone bill or something look minuscule. That's, it's kind of mind blowing all the pieces he was putting in place. Combining encounter with First Baptist of Villa, my mom coming to Vertical Church, Restoration 360, all these pieces were put in place. And I'm on the streets struggling every day, not even knowing what God's doing, but he's doing it. The masterpiece that he put together that he orchestrated, it, it blows my mind. So Natalie was dating somebody else whenever I, I moved to a villa. I wanted her back, I wanted to marry her. It took, it took a little time, she had to know that she could trust me because she's seen this before, where I started to get my stuff together and then I just fall off. But um, after, after almost two years of being clean, back on November 4th, 2017, we got married. You know, I have this great relationship with my stepdad now. My mother has her son back, my grandmother has her grandson back. It's, it's where I'm supposed to be and it's where I'm supposed to be all along. God's really working in our lives, and it's a beautiful thing.
good stuff, right? Paula, what do you have to say now to the person that's here and they're sitting where you were? To all your mom, all the moms, never give up. God keeps his promises. My next piece of advice is don't hide it. Don't rely just on yourselves. Surround yourself in prayer and with good Christian people. It wasn't that church's fault that we stopped going. It was our fault. Don't give up. Share your story. Tell somebody and share your story. You don't ever know who you can touch and whose lives you might intermingle with. Um, Ryan had said something so prophetic the other day, and it was, he is no longer an addict. God does not see me as an addict. I don't live in the past. I am free. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another part of the reason that Ryan said it was difficult for him to be here today. He didn't want to replay the past and be there. He wants to be where God has him now. That's beautiful, beautiful stuff. So what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to pray today and pray for Ryan, Natalie, for Paula, and for anyone else who is where they were. Amen. So let me uh, let me ask. Can I, can I do one thing? Yeah, come on. I just I just really wanted to especially express some thank yous. Uh, first off, to Vertical Church for everything and the support. You don't know what when you give, what you're sometimes supporting. But I want you to know on that screen is one of the things you supported. Yeah. Uh, methadone's twelve dollars a day, and you add that up, and it's it it adds up quick. If we didn't have that support, we don't know what we'd have done. Brad and Janet Vandenberg, you were instrumental in saving my son's life. Yeah, amen. And the countless other people that you've helped along the way. Ryan's not the only one that they have helped and had in their home. And to Ryan and Caleb, you were there too. To Buddy Jones. I wouldn't be alive, I don't think, if it hadn't been for Buddy. To my sweet Natalie. She hung in there. She hung in there. And her family right behind her. To my mom who is the biggest prayer warrior you've ever known in your life, prayed on his knee, her knees every day for Ryan, every day. Yeah. She never gave up. Never gave up. My beautiful sister and her family, they were there financially. They were there for me as my, back, my backbone and my support. To my brother-in-law, Bobby, he's a beautiful person. He has helped Ryan throughout his whole life. My sister-in-law, Jan, who gave her home to my son, not once but twice, with the help of my niece, Caitlin. I had to write everything down. To my sister-in-law, Vicki, who has also been there for Ryan from day one. And my countless, countless friends, and especially to David and Linda Biggerstaff. They are saints. Well, Paula, if you'll come stand here, Natalie, you come join us. And if you would like to come stand as well with Paula, with Natalie, to pray for them. Or you might even say, I'm where she was. Pray for me too. 
Would you stand with me now? All of us stand and you come and stand with them as we pray this morning. It's a beautiful thing to see the reality of the gospel, to see lives truly changed. And we've seen that here today. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.